Hello and welcome to the Evolve podcast, hosted by me, Simon Bocco, where I interview successful people who talk openly and honestly about the journey they've been on to become the person they are today, sharing stories, insights, tips and anecdotes along the way. It's a great opportunity to learn from entrepreneurs, business leaders, creatives and technologists who've all taken very different paths to success. I'm joined today by uh, Ricky Tacosta. Great to be here. Thank you for having well, me. No, thank, thank you for coming on. So I thought we've had lots of people who have been on previous podcasts, which I think have uh, really captured that journey and of building a portfolio career and working in lots of different sectors, do lots of different things. But actually, what's really interesting about you is the fact that after graduating from university, you've done everything from uh, working in sales to uh, creating your own businesses, what I call space lasers, which is much more complicated than, than space lasers, to going into marketing, to doing your own projects. So I think it'd be interesting, first of all, to tell us a bit about what you're doing now, what gets you excited and a bit, bit about that journey. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a long sort of uh, story, I guess, in terms of the different experiences that I've had. At the moment, I think my mo- focus is more on the digital and the creative side because I feel like there's a big disruption happening there. But just to sort of go backwards a little bit, so since I finished my degree, so my background was uh, as a physicist. Um, so I I, yeah. I, I finished um, I finished my degree in physics with satellite technology because I was really, really fascinated and really interested by the, by the space side of uh, things. And I feel how that can help uh, people in general. And then eventually I went more towards the entrepreneurial side. And I can, I can tell a little bit more about why I did that. But being part of that entrepreneurial journey kind of like opened and broadened my scope quite a lot, right? Because I really believe in this whole thing that entrepreneurship can be used for good. Um, and with so many different things happening with our uh, you know, planet at the moment, climate change, recently Russia has uh, destroyed a satellite, which is causing a lot of chaos in the, in the space. So dealing with stuff like that, and as well as like, you know, like stuff like cryptocurrencies and the digital universe in general, there's so many things happening. But I feel like all of that can be like sort of solved by entrepreneurs uh, with the right energy, with the right resources behind them. And I think they can, they can you know, help um, make a better planet, uh, if you will. I think what's interesting is um, you did a degree in entrepreneurship or a master's, is that right? Yes, uh, entrepreneurship, so, yes. Yeah, entrepreneurship. So, so um, I'm showing my age now. The gap between us is probably about 10 years, but it feels like 20. But in terms of, you know, what do you actually do on an entrepreneurship degree and what they teach you? Because for me, so much of it is around experience and kind of what you talked about in terms of mindset and the way that you do things is it theory based but how, how does that actually work so when, when i started the whole entrepreneurial course it was still a very new course and that was the first of its kind that was being offered by the university of sorry i've already done a previous degree which is the, the physics degree and then uh, this is a new course because i kind of sort of got involved with a lot of interesting people who are doing a lot of different entrepreneurial things in the university but i had no form of background at all whatsoever I didn't even know what accounting was, what marketing is, or sales is, any anything like that. So I kind of needed that sort of background, uh, at least a little bit more. I felt uh, in the um, in the way a business operates. So this was a great course because it was a crash course, uh, like a one year course that um, had a lot of theory, obviously, but there was a lot of practical elements to it as well. So for instance, um, I w- I actually represent the university in a um, in a three day accelerated type of event where you're invited from multiple universities together in a place you have three days it's a it's a very it's like coffee you know 
like every five minutes, uh, you go outside, talk to clients and talk to potential customers and then prototype something within three days. So that was like a very practical, you know, crash course as well. So it combines okay. both the theory as well as the practical side. And I think having that, and especially like, you know, I, I'm seeing that a lot of new universities are offering similar courses as well. I think it's a great way for like people who have absolutely no idea how a business operates in general, just to go into like something like this so that they have a better understanding of how the, the world operates uh, once they finish their degrees. Obviously, there was a period where you did, obviously, you started your own business. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing for me, and I think a lot's changed now, but I did advertising and PR, and that was also a new course at the time, believe it or not. And there was a, in my experience, a lack of maturity in, in how that is taught. And so I got a very theoretical approach to what is a very practical subject and as a result I didn't feel necessarily set me up for the world of business and actually even the discipline of advertising or PR so it'd be interesting from your perspective did you feel that doing a degree in entrepreneurship helped you realize what it's like to be an entrepreneur or did you start your own business and be like I'm in real trouble here this is actually a lot more than I thought it was I really underestimated that course hasn't helped me I think it's a (laughs) that's a great question actually I think it's a bit of a mix, right? When you're in the course itself, the entrepreneurial course, uh, it's great. You think you're going to be an entrepreneur someday, you're going to create a multi-billion dollar business and uh, from day one, and you have all the right people behind you. And then suddenly, when I've started my own business, um, Space Power, from day one, we were like, okay, this is great. It's going to go amazing. And then week two, we just realized that, oh, do we even have a business plan ready? Like uh, We're talking about investors and stuff, like where, where's the business plan? What are we going to do? How are you going to do it? How, how many pages does the business plan have to be? You know, it's like questions like that. And then suddenly you go into like the accounting side. How much money do we need? Do we actually know how much money we need? Has anyone else done it? It's like questions like that. Suddenly you realize that, oh, you don't actually know as much as you thought you did. And I guess the next stuff is to like figure out how you can find these answers to them. And I think that's the whole point of being an entrepreneur, uh, in my opinion, at least. It's just answer questions after questions in the hope that someday uh, you know you get to the answer and hopefully that's the day where you get a really big uh, paycheck i find that funny though i mean i, I don't want to be education bashing there's a lot of value in it but i would kind of see in entrepreneurship they're they're the modules right it's about um cash flow bootstrapping versus raising investment uh how to put a good pitch deck together how to position your product in the market research and development r d grant sei seis registration do you mean they're all the things that you need as an entrepreneur to understand in order to hit the ground running so was it more about i guess pitching you or making you feel slightly differently about what entrepreneurship was and like you say that we were all strapping in to build a unicorn and then when you actually get to the reality of it it's a lot different Obviously, it's a university course at the end of the day, so there's a lot of academic aspect to it. And unfortunately, you do have to sit a test. So there's a lot of theory to it that you actually have to like, you know, uh, sort of gush out at the end of your course. But yeah, I, we, we learned quite a lot of different things. Obviously, you know, h- how to pitch, obviously how to like sort of read cash flow statements, balance, you know, balance sheets and stuff. Those are, those are some of the basic things that we are taught, obviously. But then when you go towards the actual side, like the, the marketing side, I, I don't think that marketing in itself just can be like, you know, learn from a, uh, like a theoretical course. I, I, you, have to, you have to try it, you have to do it, you have to be with people that really, really understands how marketing works in the first place and really learn from them. So in some aspects to it, the course was great because it gave me a foundational experience that, okay, 
these are the things that I need to know without having absolutely zero background in anything to do with business. But however, I feel like there's a lot of other people as well who have come from various backgrounds and some of them like, you know, very um, business focused, management consulting focus uh, sort of background that they came from where they found that these sort of courses were like, you know, a very um, basic sort of course. But I guess it really depends on the on the person, obviously, you know, uh, if for myself, who is a physicist coming into the, the sector of, uh, you know, space business, I had absolutely no idea how to do it. Right. So I needed some form of understanding. And I think for me, that was like a great great starting point. And then the rest for me, it was for me to like sort of build it from then onwards, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so it kind of gave you that grounding as it's that kind of foundation on which to build. Yes, absolutely. So I think what's interesting is, is um, if, we, if we kind of look at your CV, you've moved from business development, then obviously your own business, which is drawing on your uh, knowledge and, and experience and degree in physics. And then obviously you've moved into marketing. So it'd be good to talk to me about that journey and I think the why so, 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 and what you've learned from this. Because I think what's interesting is, in my head at least anyway, almost talking about entrepreneurship or entrepreneurialism, if we broke that down, sales, marketing and product, you've kind of done all of them, you know, whether, whether that's intentional or not. So it'd be good to understand a bit more about that. So each of those aspects of skills, I kind of had an agenda behind them. So sales. It's business 101. I think you have to know how to sell something in order to be able to like, you know, be in business or else it, it really doesn't matter. Uh, whatever technology you're selling, you have to be able to influence someone and uh, make the deal happen. So for me, sales was very, very vital. And uh, I was really fortunate to have a lot of amazing people who uh, I've been mentored by, you know, who really knew how to sell. So once I've sort of picked up the sales skills, while all of that was happening, I was also sort of like quite interested in the creative and the marketing side. Now, one of the skills, obviously, you know, having that background as a physicist, I was quite technical. And it, I, I found it quite easy to go from that technical sort of deep, uh, deep dive, uh, very deep tech related products and uh, uh, I guess services to sort of going into a more like, you know, um, like a surface level. So I can, I can really go into something very deep and then sort of take it apart and then like, you know, create uh, copy, copywriting or uh, whatever materials or like social media materials or like posts and stuff uh, that can actually sell the business from a marketing perspective. So it was very natural for me to like sort of go from the sales side while also having the sort of technical side as well. And I'm generally a bit more creative person and I wanted to sort of like, you know, go down the route of digital I feel like COVID really kind of sort of opened my eyes and the power of digital and what needs to happen in the future. And I guess that was one of the main like sort of pivotal moments in life in my life because I wanted to sort of see that with all of these things happening in the digital side, like you know, uh, the emergence of uh, obviously all business going online, the fact that there's also all these technologies coming into the market, like you know, AI, pretty much everything is just going virtual and digital and automated. We kind of have to like keep up as well. So I guess. Anyone who is sort of anyone who has a business, if they're not online, I think perhaps not even now, maybe five years down the line, they're going to be in deep trouble. And I think it's very, very important for them to have those skills um, complemented right now, um, if you know what I mean, if they want to survive in the future. How did you find things then? Uh, you, from my understanding, you're trying to sell to, I guess, technical people or the business decision makers. And I think always the best salespeople tend to blend the two. So I'm quite interested in, in this kind of interesting thing going through this is the left and right brain. And, and actually, often a lot of work that I do is, is that, that complementary and bringing the, 
that kind of creativity to someone who's very technical, but you've got the creative and the technical together. So I guess it's interesting for me how, how you develop that or whether that is your parents or your parents and one's an artist and, and one's a, a mathematician. Like, where's that come from? No, I think both my parents are like, you know, they, uh, they, they're not any, in any of the sort of like technical or any of those areas. Like they, so my dad is a chef and my mom, uh, she, you know, she's a carer. So I don't know where I got these sort of skills from, right. but I guess I was, I was innately always passionate about um, learning about the technology and the sciences. But at the same time, I also have like a sort of creative, creative knack in general. I guess the only way to sort of like, you know, strengthen those skills is just go and work and like, you know, try new things, uh, do new things. So on the sales side, um, I was always like sort of listening to um, podcasts and like, uh, I used to actually have CDs as well of like, you know, very inspirational, motivational people. Like I used to listen to, my, to it in my car you know, before going to work just so that I can sort of prepare myself to be ready from the time I, you know, I arrive in the office. And from the, from the digital and the sort of creative side, I actually use a tool called Canva quite a lot uh, to create designs. And I guess just like, just by trying things, when I first started, it was horrible. Obviously, I guess you don't, you, you never are good on day one, right? So by trying new things, I naturally just sort of gravitated towards the creative side a bit more than just purely the sales side. However, I can complement both, but it, it's also the case that because I'm actively sort of putting more time and effort into learning new skills, those sort of skills are getting better and better as well day by day. And you've, I think what's interesting as well is you, you've worked on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. So you've worked for Airbus, which is obviously a massive company. And then you started your own company, which is, it felt like was a, a proper, proper startup. It wasn't, you know, you had a million pounds to get going. It was, you know, it was a couple of people and, and grinding away. So, so talk to me about that transition and, and how that felt. And I think what's interesting, I think for a lot of people is around those big leaps. So there's, when you're working for a large global company, there's lots of safety or perceived safety that comes from that. And then obviously two guys in a garage making space lasers. And we'll talk about that in more detail. It's not space lasers. It's far more complicated than that. Just you're far more intelligent than me and you can explain it better. But talk to me about that transition and that leap of faith and how that felt. So it was actually in my first job. So again, I went into that job with the with the sales and like, you know, learning sales and stuff, but I, I wasn't properly fulfilled at the job just because it was not that technical. I, I didn't get that technical sort of knack to it as well, right? And I was always trying to find out new ways of like, you know, how can I sort of make that breakthrough? And then I came across this event that was happening in London, which again was a very space-themed, I think it was uh, being sponsored by Techstars and Google um, at that point. So it was like a space-themed, uh, again, accelerated type of event. Quite a lot of big sort of people were there as well, like Dallas, uh, uh, satellite applications catapult. I think some people from Airbus as well were like sort of the panelists and stuff. And again, you had three days to like create groups, meet people, and then create a next visionary idea and like pitch it in front of them, right? So that was great because it was me and three others. From from the first day itself, we kind of just clicked. One of them was actually a senior member from Airbus who was in our team. And I'll get to that. That's one of the main reasons why I've actually joined Airbus eventually. And then the other one was a nuclear physicist and the other person was a purely a marketing person. So we had a very diverse group of people from various backgrounds and that's exactly the type yeah. of you know, mentality that we needed. And it was great because at the end of the thing, uh, the whole program on our final day, we pitched, I think we won the third place in there. And then as you can imagine being young and you know, uh, 
when you win something like this, your ego is boosted. And we're like, okay, we have to start a business right now. So funny enough, we ended up actually creating a limited corporation like two weeks after that. And then since then, we have actually just stayed true. Um, and we really wanted to like actually develop this business a uh, lot more. So that was kind of like my breakthrough in terms of going from a non-technical role, which was purely sales, to a more technical focused business that is more to do with sort of business development and partnership building and uh, creating sort of pitches and stuff. And around the same time, one of the, the people that my team, he was also uh, a senior member of the Airbus and he was the one who was quite inspired um, and he wanted to work with me a lot more. And he kind of offered me a contractual position in Airbus to like sort of help develop some of their other facilities and uh, their other services as well. So that's how, that's how that whole leap happened. I guess sometimes you just gotta like, just do it <laughs> yourself if no one actually offers you anything else. So I've obviously called it space lasers way too many times, right? So um, you are definitely not Dr. Evil with the space lasers. So, so explain to me the, te the technology and uh, how that works. And, and I think the interesting thing for, for me on a really personal level is I do a lot of uh, R&D and innovation from a digital perspective, but I'm assuming there's a, a big hardware part of this as well. So talk to me about that journey and how that came about and, and some more specifics around the business. The reason we actually started this business in the first place was because at the moment, at least in the last like five, five to eight years, there's been a huge transition in the space environment, right? So there's companies like SpaceX and all these other big, big uh, Blue Origins and so many other com companies coming in and they're, they're launching huge number of satellites. I'm, I'm, I'm talking like thousands at a time. It's, it's, it's really crazy. So what ends up happening is that because of that effect, there's a lot of other smaller companies that are creating smaller satellites. However, they're not, because they're very small, their batteries and the capacity that they have on board is, is really, really bad. So it, it's not enough for them to sustain their operation and perhaps even create a bit more value than what they actually wanted. So just give an example, um, say it's a surveillance satellite that I don't know, someone has put up or even a, uh, a, a satellite that's used to like, you know, observe a specific area on the planet. It goes around, around the planet, say, every 24 hours. And amongst the 24 hours, only roughly 2 to 3% of their entire orbit is actually functional. The rest of the time, the satellite is actually dead. So it's not doing anything. So it's really wasted. So what we were thinking is that, okay, fine. All these satellites are going up. What happens if we were to be able to like, you know, boost that energy a little bit more? We don't know how, but if we were to be able to do that, what would happen? So once we started getting that you know, question on paper, we, we started having these ideas and we found that because every satellite has a solar panel for it to operate, what if we beamed power directly onto those solar panels while they're on their orbit, would it actually boost the capacity of, uh, or even like, you know, give it a bit more power uh, than it, what, it, what it has on board? And that was great because suddenly we started seeing that quite a lot of other companies and big, big organizations have done previous work in the past, but they have not actually sort of, you know, gone through with it. So we we're like, okay, this is great. I think this is something we can look into. And then suddenly we realized that amongst various different things, because space is a, is a vacuum, there is no um, air there. It's great because you can use lasers. It's not going to start going everywhere because you can, there's no air. You can be very precise in where you direct that energy. And suddenly you have this capacity to kind of beam energy wirelessly to another object and kind of power it up. So what our idea was eventually was to create this power plant, uh, if you will, on space that just sits there on various locations in the orbit. And all it does is just sort of, you know, zap power when 
whenever it's needed, basically. So all, almost like an on-demand sort of service. So that is what we were trying to sort of build our company towards. It's a brilliant was. idea, but it sounds very expensive. So how did you go about, so, so the innovation roadmap, I mean, where do you start from there? Where, where's the first step and, and what does a, a minimal viable product look like for, for that kind of thing? You're completely right. Firstly, it is a very expensive uh, business, but this is not a business that we thought that we couldn't achieve this in day one, or it's not like a five-year scale that this can be achieved. It's like a long-term plan to have a viable business model. For us, day one, MVP currently looks like a, um, a laser-based, just a demonstration on a table to prove that from point A to point B, if you can beam a laser, can it power something on the other end? And if so, is it efficient? Because if you end up losing, like, I don't know, 95% of the power, it's, it's wasted, so there's no point, right? But the other thing is the fact that on Earth, there's air, and that kind of, like, reduces the efficiency drastically, which you don't have that, you don't have that problem in space. So naturally, things are more efficient uh, in that sort of capacity. So... I guess from an MVP perspective, that is what the MVP looks like. So when I was there, I one of the first contracts that we won was actually from uh, the University um, of Surrey, who were actually doing some previous work on a similar project with the European Space Agency. And um, I was one of the people who won that contract to actually do a study to see the different, firstly, different types of lasers, different uh, variation of energy transfers, and what that actually means. Because there's a huge momentum happening within the UK at the moment where government is actively looking into beaming power from space back down to the grid. And I know it sounds really sci-fi, but it's not. It's actually happening. There's a money being put into that, but there's a lot of disadvantages to that sort of problem as well. But I guess for every different types of technology, you have both the pros and cons, and I guess you, you kind of have to weigh it and find out how much it costs at the end of all of it. So I think that's another interesting point, actually, around partnership with university and academia and, and their role in innovation. So I know from personal experience, working with lots of businesses in autonomy or EV charging or similar, they have a lots of partnerships with universities. So it'd be interesting to see from firsthand or understand firsthand your experience and, and how those partnerships tend to work and the strength or, in, in fact, weaknesses of academia meeting entrepreneur and, and how that works so partnering with university <laughs> again is it has its pros and cons firstly you get academics who sometimes just doesn't understand uh, what you're trying to do for your business obviously at the end of all business the the goal is to like you know make some money but at the same time create great technologies or great products that your customers and your um, you know audiences will love but academics doesn't always understand that because they're very focused on the technology aspect. So it, there's a strange game that you have to play with them in order to actually get to that, that minimum viable product, firstly. Secondly, I think from an IP perspective, we had to be very cautious in the way we deal with universities because naturally universities try to hold as much you know, technology and IP as possible um, and uh, you know, have patents wherever they can, uh, literally. So even if it's like a, literally a small screw that they have built in that project, they will try and patent it as much as possible, right? So uh, we have to be very, very careful when you deal with academics in that way. But I don't think that's the problem with the academics per se. It's more to do with the actual way the universe, uh, the university operates. So there's a little bit of a 
cautious game that I would probably suggest anyone sort of willing to work with academics should sort of think about. But at the end of the day, if you have cash and if you have capital already and you're willing to fund that entire bit of work to an academic, that's great because then you can hold that entire IP yourself and the academic just, you're just sort of subcontracting that from the academic side. So that's not a problem. But if you're coming in, in a more of a partnership position where the university is sort of paying something and you're also paying something, I would be very careful in the way we sort of partner it and really read the terms and conditions. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's, that's really interesting because I guess what, what are the two entities looking to get from that engagement? So you're looking to develop and build a product. They're looking to develop IP and, and build their business. So it's an odd thing where, like you say, if you're in a subcontractor model, you're going to, although it costs you money, you're going to get more value because equity stays in your business. I think that's, that's really important. So uh, how, how far did you get along the track then? So, so because I, I know you eventually decided to not pursue that as a, a long-term business. So how far did you get in your prototyping and, and at what stage did you decide that actually this wasn't the right thing to do? It's funny, we, we were a bit unlucky in, in the sense that when things started really sort of, you know, going well, so we, we won the first contract, things were really progressing very well. And then suddenly it was the peak of COVID, just out of nowhere. And being a space company that needs a lot of money and uh, you know a lot of investors backing, it was not really the ideal time to have a business that I don't know, ten years down the line will literally change the way things operate in space. So for us, it was a very very difficult period. And I guess anyone who's like sort of trying to create a uh, a company in space needs to be a bit you know needs to have uh, some patience and a, a lot of luck as well. I think, I think luck plays a massive, massive role in that. So for us, we created the MVP. We had a really strong feasibility study. We partnered with obviously the university as well as we we're looking into like sort of manufacturers and like, you know, people who can create lenses and things that will actually be sort of put up there. Um, and we went quite, quite a lot ahead. But then obviously because of the lack of funding and what we started seeing is that, again, the uncertainties that COVID had on its own, the business was not sustainable at that at that very moment. So there was a there was a few of us who decided like, okay, perhaps I think it is time to take a pause. Let's see what happens like after COVID and things as as the world comes back online again. If you know, yeah, if you know what I mean. And then, funnily enough, earlier this year, uh, the government has like started to kickstart this whole like you know future technologies project again. So who knows? Perhaps in the in the in the near future, this sort of project will again kickstart technology again will like you know go down the project but i'm still very in very good terms with the people uh, i'm still talking to the founder every every other week and i can see that you know he's really working towards that goal and who knows perhaps in the, even in the future like you know i'll i'll join back in some form of capacity but not in the capacity that i would probably want to like you know spend in developing other businesses to like help people uh, i guess you know immediately rather than uh, in a in a more long time uh, long-term perspective. So those are my ideas at the moment. Another interesting thing for me is how does one get something in space? Do you need, is, is it an exclusive club? Do you need to have a license or can anyone put something in space? Uh, it really depends. I mean, I, I don't want to call it the wrong thing, um, but yes, you do. So for communication related stuff, you do need license and up to a certain level, I think, depending on how small your satellite actually is, uh, you can get away with most stuff. But I think, Nowadays, governments are very, very aware about the whole problem that's happening relating to debris in space, because at the moment, in space, there's no air. So everything just floats and everything just spirals. 
So even if there's small debris, it, it can be very devastating. So that is a big problem. So you have to make sure that your satellites come down. But apart from that, you can get away with small satellites. But if it's a really, really big satellite, something like you know what Airbus or uh, Thales and someone would launch, which is like, I don't know, 500 tons or something. Yeah, you definitely need a lot of licenses and a lot of approval before you can do that. But those are big, big companies, so they can get, get away with that very, very easily. Who governs space? At the moment, it's each country on their own, which is why you see a lot of blame game between each, each country. So if, uh, I don't know, China's blasting something up, then America's going to blame. And if America does it, other countries are going to blame. Um, but yeah, there's no unified space commission, if you will, that governs the entire way space operates, which is a problem. In the future, I think this will change. And again, there was a very devastating thing that happened where uh, Russia tested a anti-satellite missile that created a lot more debris. And Russia can get away with it, but other countries won't because it's those smaller satellites that's going to get hit by those debris eventually and create a lot more, you know, uh, it's going to get an exponential rise to this debris problem. So something needs to happen within that area. So in the future, perhaps we'll have a worldwide commission, I suppose. To me, it makes a lot, lot of sense, right? An almost decentralized uh, ability in different countries to put something into space, like you say, will eventually become a problem, surely. It's like you say, because some persons or a country or government's approach might be well-funded and very well-considered, where someone else's approach might be poorly funded and not very well-considered. And actually, those are the people that are creating potentially long-term problems that we haven't done a lot of research or there's much understanding about. Yes, absolutely. So just give you an example. Uh, <laughs> two, two years ago, three years ago, China did the exact same thing. They tested a, a, a missile to, I don't know, just see what happens if they blow up a satellite. And again, that, pro that problem has literally created 30,000 or 40,000 debris. India, who's like really uh, strong in their space game now and becoming a very, very big contender in the space, they did the same thing. And again, that has increased. But the problem happens in the future because each debris can create more debris. And this whole phenomenon is called Kessler syndrome. And suddenly, maybe on the first year, you created one debris that hits two and then four and then eight. And then suddenly it's like an exponential rise. And within like a three or four year time, you're just locked. So suddenly human beings can't actually escape or go into space anymore because it's just a minefield. And that is the big problem. And that is what we really should be sort of like trying to avoid in the future. This is really fascinating. So I'm learning so much. So how, how do I get a space in space? You know, so if I'm launching a satellite, have you said to me, right, you can have this bit of space or will I just put it anywhere in space? Is, are, are there like coordinates on which I can operate in or not? How does that work? Coordinates on some orbits, yes, you can have coordinates. But like companies, Elon Musk has solved a lot of these problems. And I guess thanks to Elon Musk, all, a lot of like things, you can even like actually put like stuff in space that are not necessarily space ready through what they call the ride sharing program, uh, where you put a small satellite or something in space, they will launch, SpaceX will launch it for you. It's going to be very cheap. Uh, back in the day, it used to cost like, I don't know, millions. But SpaceX has just like, you know, brought down the whole cost to like only 100 or 200K, which is just crazy. And it's going to go even lower because in the future, they're going to be launching every week. So yeah, if you want to launch something in space and you've got a satellite or you've created a satellite, just contact SpaceX or some of these other companies. And in the future, I think from next year, we can even launch it from the UK as well, uh, from Scotland. 
that's where the uh, next uh, spaceport is being built. So it sounds like it's a real opportunity for some innovation in this space, pun intended. Um, <laughs> Because there's the barriers to entry, I guess, are getting reduced and there's less of them. Yes. Um, so 10 years or 15 years, no one would be able to like, you know, put their small satellites up there. And even if you do, I mean, it would cost you minimum of like 4 million, 5 million, perhaps even 10 million, depending on what you're actually putting up there. Now it's only going to cost you like maybe 50K, 100K, or even like, you know, 200K. So you can see that the cost literally within a decade has dramatically decreased. And I think it's just keep on you know, decreasing even more. And uh, there's a lot of new types of things that's happening within this environment as well. So yes, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a very fascinating time to be uh, in the space race. This is quite a difficult question, but obviously you talk about a passion for technology and obviously what's happening in so many parts of technology. Are there any learnings that you've had from operating in a hardware space? I keep saying the word space. Yeah. Um, and that you feel is is transferable to working in a in a digital space and, and things that you that you've picked up and learned from going through that process that you might not have done if you'd gone a traditional route of perhaps doing your entrepreneur course and then going straight to a SaaS platform. Um, yeah, there's a lot of overlying themes. I guess one of the main aspects is project management. I guess that that is quite key in pretty much any industry that you are. Uh, but I was quite fortunate enough to be like, you know, when I was working my last company to have led a, a, a project as a product owner and a product role uh, in, an, in an agile uh, methodology. So uh, that for me was great because I've, I've seen that even within the digital space, you know, there's a lot of uh, technologies being built or like, say, machine learning algorithms and stuff that's being built, but in a very agile way as well. So, um, yes, there's quite a lot of like transferable skills from a hardware perspective. There are some similarities, I would say but not much because the way hardware is built, again, the, the life cycle is pretty long <laughs> and there's a lot of iterations that needs to happen. Whereas in the digital environment, which I personally like is because it's, it's a lot quicker, right? Because you can go to market in less than a month uh, if, you, if you really put that effort and work. Uh, but in a hardware environment, you, you'll need to go through series of testing in order to even validate your idea or your product first. And then perhaps you, you can even think about considering to go into market. So I guess the life cycles and the times kind of play a massive role into that. So yeah, like I personally like the whole digital side and the digital technologies because again, you can test and validate so much quicker than a hardware business can operate. Yeah, I think there's often a big opportunity where those two things meet. So a particular piece of hardware that's got AI or machine learning on board and some vision or perception working together, I think that's a, a big opportunity. But I think I guess, final question on this before, before we move on. Let's say you were very su successful and, and you became a multimillionaire and you went back into the world of space and you, you had a million pounds to invest in something. Where would you put your money? Where do you think the, the, the future is and the big growth opportunity? Hmm, I think that's a good question. <laughs> haven't, haven't fully thought into it, but I guess I would probably try to explore the whole uh, the wireless power transmission thing again. Not so much on Earth, but more to do with the whole lunar environment. There's a lot of stuff happening in the, because America has a program called the Artemis program, and they want to like send people back in the moon and literally have a permanent habitat there. Uh, and that's, that's really building momentum. And a lot of countries have signed to this, uh, you know, exact, exact program as well. So they're putting a lot of resources together. And in that environment, I think there'll be 
it will be very key um, to have power because as, like on the moon, obviously you can't have power on the, what we call the dark side. It's not really a dark side, but that's the metaphor that we all use. In that environment, you will need to like have, you know, power transmission, like rovers, and there's again, uh, almost vacuum. So you can like, you know, be empowered there. But I would also be interested to integrate blockchain with the space environment as well. I think in the future, I think that'll be quite cool and quite key as well, because blockchain, again, uh, there's a lot of security things that you know it, it solves, uh, which I really like about it. But at the moment, some of the satellite and space protocols are just not as strong. So theoretically, they can be hacked quite easily. And I've also seen, like I've, I've also heard from stories from people like technologies who kind of do that just for fun, but obviously on small satellites, which are, you know, they're there just to have fun with, uh, if, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. yeah, so blockchain and mixing space would be a very, very interesting thing for me in the future. So I think, guess, to finish, thing, what, what does the future hold? So I think, obviously, you've got uh, such an eclectic experience and, and so much learn. Where do you see, see your future? So at the moment, I think digital is where I really see a massive potential and massive growth more so because of all of this stuff that's happening right with the whole um, facebook uh, announcing their metaverse and all these other stuff i, I think it's just going to keep on it's going to com- compound so much so that you know there's going to be a lot more need for digital services in the future and especially like you know covid has taught us one thing that you know you need to you need to have a presence online you, you need to be able to work remotely from anywhere. I know for marketing companies and stuff, that has always been the case, but uh, for a lot of other businesses, that's not so, they're just getting used to it. So combining all of those aspects together, I think digital is the future and digital with web 3.0 and obviously, you know, all these things like metaverse and all of this combined together, I think that's where a real growth opportunity is for pretty much any digital business out there. I guess that's where the horizon for me at the moment is. Which is why I think being associated with you know digital companies and marketing companies and stuff, I think is a very, very opportune moment this time right now than what it was even like you know two to three years ago, uh, if you will. So I think this is a this is a space that will likely to explode and have hundreds of millions of opportunities coming out of it uh, within a space of next five years. Yeah, so it sounds like from what you said, I think there's a real opportunity to use web for good. Yes, absolutely. Um Especially like thinking about like stuff like climate change, which is a really, really big topic. Um, I already know one of my uh, friends who is actually working in this sort of area using digital apps or creating a digital app that actually literally sort of monitors every little things that you do on a daily basis. And I guess I think we need to be a bit more cautious about the way obviously we treat our planet yeah, and uh, if we can like sort of reduce the, the emissions and uh, whatever we can, I guess, uh, from our perspective, I think it's a help. So um, absolutely. I think. With digital, there's a lot that we can do and uh, we can help with in the future. And that wraps up another episode of the Evolve podcast. I hope you've taken inspiration and learned something from this week's interview. And I'd love to see you here next week. So please do subscribe. If you're interested in finding out more about what we're doing at Evolve, be sure to check us out by visiting goevolve.co.uk. And finally, remember, in business and in life, you never stop evolving. See you next week. (laughs) 